0: We're listening to the Loop podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Loop podcast. This is your host, Dr. Morgan Martin. Today, I'm going to be talking about head and neck cancer and salivary gland tumors. This should be a fairly short episode, so I hope you get some use out of it and just in time for your in-service exam next week. References for this episode are the Graben Smith textbook, as well as Review of Plastic Surgery by Donald Buck, and I will be again reviewing the 2021 in-service exam questions at the end of this episode. All right, let's get started. So first, over 95% of upper aerodigestive tract tumors are from squamous cell carcinoma. And the overall five-year survival is variable, but it's about 65%. It's based on the stage, the site, and histologic findings. So first, let's talk about incidence and risk factors. So Obviously, tobacco is a major risk factor for squamous cell carcinoma of the upper aerodigestive tract. There is a relative risk of about 3.4 for oral cavity and 6.8 for oral pharynx squamous cell carcinoma in current tobacco smokers compared with non-smokers. Also, tobacco with concomitant alcohol consumption synergistically increases the risk 10 to 15-fold. In addition to tobacco and alcohol use... These cancers are secondary to viral infections such as Epstein-Barr virus and human papillomavirus. Now let's talk about preoperative considerations. Following a thorough history and physical exam, all suspicious lesions should be biopsied. There's a relatively high risk of synchronous primary cancers. So the next step is also panendoscopy. So that would include laryngoscopy, bronchoscopy, and esophagoscopy as part of the workup. Then as with most cancers, you're going to do a staging workup with CT scan to look for nodal metastases as well as bony invasion and this is not only important for staging but also surgical planning. If there is a question involving the extent of soft tissue involvement or perineural spread, you can also use MRI, and this can be used in a preferred manner or in addition to CT scan. You can also use a PET scan to look for distant metastases. So, let's talk about staging really quick. So, very broadly, Small tumors without obvious nodal metastases are stage 1 and 2. And then larger, more extensive tumors with or without the presence of cervical nodal metastases represent stage 3 and 4 cancers. So what factors are linked to poor outcomes? So number one, advanced tumor stage. Next, increased soft tissue depth of invasion, presence of nodal metastases, perineural invasion, lymphovascular invasion, and extranodal extension. Most cancers of the oral cavity and pharynx, when they present as squamous cell carcinoma, those patients usually have advanced disease, including nodal metastases. Now, this may be really hard to listen to, but I'm really quick going to go over the TNM clinical staging system for lip and oral cavity cancers. So TX means primary tumor cannot be assessed, T0 is no evidence of primary tumor. TIS is carcinoma in situ. T1, so this is getting into the important stuff. So T1 is less than 2 centimeters in greatest dimension. T2 is 2 to 4 centimeters. T3 is greater than 4 centimeters. T4A is for the lip is invasion of the mandible, skin, floor of mouth, or nerve. Then for occult tumor, invasion of mandible, extrinsic tongue, maxilla, or skin. T4B lesions are invasion of masticator space, skull base, or carotid sheath. Now let's talk about the N or nodes. So NX is nodes cannot be assessed. N0 is no evidence of nodal metastasis. N1 is a single ipsilateral, so same side node, less than 3 centimeters. N2A is a single ipsilateral node, 3 to 6 centimeters. N2B is multiple ipsilateral 3 to 6 centimeter nodes. N2C is bilateral or contralateral, less than 6 centimeter nodes, and N3 is any lymph node greater than 6 centimeters. So that would be a pretty giant node. At this point, I'm not going to go over the complete staging system because it can be a little confusing listening to the whole thing, but just know that a stage 1 is a T1, a stage 2 is a T2, and then once you get to stage 3, you're either a big tumor, which is a T3, Or you have an N1, so early nodal metastases. And then stage four is divided into A, B, and C. And you increase the number of nodal metastases up to 4C, which is distant metastases. So let's talk about oropharyngeal cancer. So it is distinctly different from oral cavity cancer. And although it is... Also, squamous cell carcinoma predominating with approximately 90% of cases. Most common sites being the tongue and the tonsillar region. All specimens should be tested for P16 protein or HPV DNA or RNA for staging. So the treatment is a little bit different compared to oral cavity squamous cell carcinoma and it is more controversial. So for early stage cancers, surgery alone or radiation alone results in comparable overall survival. Radiation has been favored at many centers to preserve speech and swallowing function. Alternatives now are transoral laser microsurgery and also transoral robotic surgery. For advanced cancers, current evidence would support use of either combined chemotherapy and radiation therapy or surgery. If surgery is performed, it may be followed by adjuvant therapy depending on the pathologic findings and stage. So now let's go on to talk about treatment in more of a generic capacity for all head and neck tumors. So, in general, early-stage tumors are treated with single-modality therapy and late-stage tumors are treated with multi-modality therapy, usually surgery, followed by adjuvant radiation with or without chemotherapy. Surgery is the mainstay of treatment for oral cavity cancer. For most sites, adequate surgical margins are defined by the NCCN guidelines as greater than 5 millimeters or more on final pathology. And then a close margin would be defined as anything less than 5 millimeters. Most of the time, you can rely on frozen section examination to make sure you have clear surgical margins if you're going to, for example, follow with immediate flap reconstruction. So let me try to summarize that treatment for you. Stage 1 or 2 disease, for example, no nodal metastases. These patients usually receive complete surgical resection, with or without neck dissection versus radiation therapy to the primary site. And remember, like I said, radiation therapy sometimes is used primarily for the lesions of larynx, hypopharynx, and nasopharynx. And then surgery is frequently recommended for oropharynx, oral cavity, and paranasal sinuses. Then for stage 3 or 4 disease, complete surgical resection, neck dissection, and adjuvant radiation therapy is recommended. Now, who gets a neck dissection if you have an early stage cancer? So there is evidence that there is an increased overall survival in early stage oral cancers, those who receive an elective neck dissection, and also decreased nodal recurrence. And this is despite an increased risk of postoperative complications. Let's talk about some definitions regarding cervical lymphadenectomy. A radical neck dissection is defined by in-block removal of lymph nodes from levels one through five, along with the sternocleidomastoid muscle, internal jugular vein, and spinal accessory nerve. A modified radical neck dissection is removal of all lymph nodes that you would otherwise be removing in a radical neck dissection, so levels one through five, but with preservation of one or more non-lymphatic structures such as SCM, internal jugular vein, and the spinal accessory nerve. Sparing of all three of these non-lymphatic structures is sometimes referred to as a functional neck dissection. And then lastly, a selective neck dissection is a cervical lymphadenectomy with preservation of one or more lymph node groups routinely removed in a radical neck dissection or a modified radical neck dissection. Now let me describe for you the levels of the neck for the neck dissection because we frequently do get tested on this. Level one is the submental and submandibular triangles. 1A is submental, 1B is submandibular. Level two is the upper jugular group. It extends from the skull base to the carotid bifurcation or high wood bone. Level three, middle jugular group extends from the carotid bifurcation hyoid bone to the omohyoid muscle or cracothyroid notch. Level four, the lower jugular group extends from the omohyoid muscle to the clavicle. And level five is the posterior triangle bounded by the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, the anterior border of the trapezius and the clavicle. Level six is the anterior central compartment. So most important probably to know is six is central compartment, 1A, 1B, submental, submandibular, five is posterior, and then two, three, and four divide up that lateral portion of the neck. Now, I'm going to break this down into something a little more simple and practical for the plastic surgeon. First, let's talk about lip cancer. Greater than 90% of cases are squamous cell carcinoma, and it is the most common site of head and neck cancer, excluding skin malignancies. Usually, you will see an ulcerated or exophytic lesion, especially of the lower lip, and keep in mind greater than two centimeter lesions need to have that CT scan to evaluate for cervical nodal metastases. It most commonly metastasizes to those level one nodes, which is submandibular or submental area. Treatment is surgical excision and radiation is limited to those patients who cannot tolerate surgery. We're not going to talk about lip reconstruction in this episode. However, we can briefly say that the primary goal of reconstruction is oral competence and it's going to vary based on the defect location and size. In general, you can primarily close lesions smaller than one-third of the lower lip and one-fourth of the upper lip. Lesions involving the commissure typically require Eastlander flap. Large central lesions may be reconstructed with a Carapanzitic, Gillies, or Webster Bernard flaps. Central lip defects can be reconstructed with abbe or lip switch flap, and then total lower lip reconstruction can be performed with a free radial forearm flap, commonly using the palmaris tendon as a fascial sling for oral competence. Next, let's talk about floor of mouth cancer. 30% present with nodal metastasis. Because of the location, these may require a mandibulotomy for exposure. Depending on extent of invasion, this may be a mandibular resection. Of course, reconstructive options depend on the defect size. For large floor of mouth tumors resection without segmental mandibular resection, you could use a radial forearm flap for reconstruction. But if you have a composite defect, including bone, you really need a vascularized osteocutaneous flap, such as a free fibula flap. Now, tongue cancer, most commonly, as expected, squamous cell carcinoma. These usually arise from pre-existing leukoplakia or erythroplasia. And tongue cancer has the highest rate of regional metastases of all oral cancers. In general, base of tongue tumors are more infiltrative and have a higher incidence of nodal metastases. If the lesion is less than 4 centimeters, of the anterior and middle one-third of the tongue, these can often be closed primarily. Larger, more posterior lesions will likely need a fasciocutaneous free flap such as a radial forearm flap or ALT. Now let's move on to salivary gland tumors. The salivary glands include the parotid, submandibular, and sublingual glands. Salivary gland tumors are rare with fewer than 15 cases per 100,000 individuals annually 80% of salivary gland tumors are actually benign, and the majority, again, 80% of salivary gland tumors occur in the parotid gland. The most common benign tumor is a benign pleomorphic adenoma at 80% in the parotid gland, and also tumors that arise in the submandibular or sublingual glands are more likely to be malignant. For diagnosis, this includes biopsy, usually with a fine needle aspiration, as well as a workup, including a CT scan and or MRI. So first, let's talk about the benign salivary gland tumors. So first is pleomorphic adenoma. Again, the most common and is of epithelial origin is both the most common in adults and children, but it is most common in the fourth to fifth decade They are well-circumscribed, grossly lobular and gray in appearance. The pleomorphic adenoma is treated by surgical excision and has a very low recurrence rate, 0-5%. to Incomplete excision is the main risk for recurrence. If left untreated, 15% may undergo malignant transformation. This is why resection is recommended. Next, benign tumor is papillary cystadenoma lymphomatosum or Warthin's tumor. It is the second most common tumor of the parotid gland and again is benign. More commonly in males age 50 to 70, commonly in smokers, and it is the most common bilateral salivary gland tumor. It is characterized by smooth painless mass. Treatment is surgical excision with narrow margins. Next is hemangioma, And this is the most common parotid mass in children. It is characterized by typical growth pattern of hemangiomas, which is rapid growth after birth, followed by involution. Treatment is oral prednisone for enlarging lesions. And surgical excision if it continues to grow despite treatment. Now let's talk about malignant salivary gland tumors. So first is mucoepidermoid carcinoma. This is the most common salivary gland malignancy about 35% of salivary gland cancers, and this consists of mucin-secreting intermediate and epidermoid cells. So the histologic grade has prognostic value and dictates the need for adjuvant radiation. So usually the low and intermediate grade tumors present asymptomatic, slow-growing, solitary masses, whereas the high grade tumors progress rapidly and present with symptoms including pain, nerve deficits, and local soft tissue invasion. Elective node dissection is recommended for high-grade tumors. Next is adenoid cystic carcinoma. This is the second most common malignant tumor of the parotid gland and is the most common malignancy of the submandibular and sublingual glands. It is characterized by painful, firm, fixed lesion with an affinity for nerve invasion, resulting in facial nerve and or trigeminal nerve dysfunction. Treatment is with total parotidectomy and resection of all involved nerves in the path of the tumor. Next is acynic cell carcinoma. This can be bilateral in approximately 3% of patients. It is characterized by solid or cystic multifocal masses in the parotid gland. Treatment is total parotidectomy with resection of the facial nerve and repair with nerve graft and neck dissection. Last is adenocarcinoma, slow growing, firm, fixed masses, Usually involves facial nerve with metastases to cervical nodes or even systemic metastases. Treatment, total parotidectomy, resection of the facial nerve, cervical node dissection, and adjuvant radiation. So in general, ways to answer these questions on the exam. Benign tumors, you can usually do a superficial parotidectomy for malignant tumors of low grade that are in the superficial parotid, you can usually get away with a superficial parotidectomy. But otherwise, all the malignant tumors get a total parotidectomy, sacrificing the facial nerve with a cervical lymphadenectomy. And who gets adjuvant radiation therapy? Those with unresectable, locally advanced tumors with skull base or carotid involvement or those occurring in patients who are not able to tolerate surgery. Also, undifferentiated, high-grade tumors, advanced-stage tumors, including those with facial nerve and deep lobe involvement, tumors with lymphatic or vascular invasion, and tumors with positive margins. The adjuvant radiation therapy helps to prevent local regional recurrence. All right, the last thing to talk about where you may have a question in this section is Frey syndrome, which is gustatory sweating that can occur after parotidectomy. And this is secondary to interconnection of the parasympathetic nerve fibers from the parotid gland that basically reinnervate the sympathetic nerve fibers of the sweat glands in the overlying skin. So diagnosis is made with clinical history, also starch iodine tests, and treatment options include re-elevation of that cheek flap with insertion of something like fascia or acellular dermal matrix to separate the nerve endings. You can also use Botox for chemo denervation. All right, that is it for this portion of the episode. Next, let's talk about the questions from the 2021 in-service exam. So we had a question regarding classic signs of angina or deep space infection of the floor of the mouth. So this is something you should be able to recognize clinically and it is drooling, protruding tongue, and woody edema non-fluctuant of the submandibular region. And the source is frequently a dental periapical abscess, often malar in origin. Treatment includes ICU monitoring of the airway for possible impending intubation, antibiotics, and surgical drainage. We then had a question about a woman. History of smoking has a squamous cell carcinoma, and they're giving you a scenario where there is invasion of the mandible. So as we talked about earlier, so if you have invasion of the mandible, you're going to need to do a segmental mandibulectomy. And that is the most appropriate surgical treatment. This patient also gets a a neck dissection. So keep in mind that a segmental mandibulectomy refers to full thickness excision of the mandible versus the other option is marginal mandibulectomy. And so this is when the cancer does not protrude past the periosteum and does not penetrate full thickness through the cortex and the mandible. Um, so marginal mandibulectomy would re- would be reserved for those cases. We then had a question about laryngopharyngeal defects using a free flap for reconstruction. What is the advantage of a jejunal free flap over an ALT flap? Both can be used to restore continuity of the hypopharynx and cervical esophagus following resection. There are many advantages to the ALT flap, including lower donor site morbidity, independence of a footing tube, lower flap loss rates, However, the advantage of the jejunal flap is a more straightforward inset. We then had a question about a child with a growing mass in the cheek that was found to be a pleomorphic adenoma found in the parotid gland. And we know this is a benign lesion. Is asking about the recurrence rate after complete excision. And the recurrence rate is 6 to 15%. We then had a question about... A patient who had a large resection of the mandible due to a malignant lesion and we need to reconstruct ramus to ramus and is asking what is the best method and really all the options do not work except for a vascularized bone and skin paddle, which is a fibular free flap. So that answer is pretty straightforward. The next question asks about a malignant or a pharyngeal tumor and how it is staged. So very important. You must know about the HPV status. So, P16 via immunohistochemistry. So, that's really important. The most recent NCCN staging guidelines require the HPV status to determine staging. A very similar question, oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma associated with tobacco and alcohol. How is that compared to oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma associated with HPV? And so, The squamous cell carcinomas associated with HPV have a better prognosis stage for stage. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode. Hopefully, this is all the information you could possibly need to know about head and neck cancer, parotid tumors for the in-service exam. So good luck on the exam next week. I will be taking it as well. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify, to hear more of our episodes remember season one is all in service review so just go and listen to all of them this week during your study time go ahead and follow us on instagram to get in the loop